Before we get started, um, if you're interested in uh, reading more about this, I would highly suggest this book, Answering Islam. Probably one of the better ones as far as being able to relate biblical to the Quran and their beliefs and everything like that. So I would highly suggest that. This one goes into quite a bit of detail of what the Quran says and compares it to what the Bible says and various things like that. So if you're interested in that, you can get the details from me. We got a lot of stuff to cover this morning, so as soon as the bell rings, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to cover the last sections of the handout that I went through. Also, on the very back of those, I'm not going to go over it. Um, I'm going to let Greg talk about that when he goes to Mormonism. But there's a comparison between Muhammad and Joseph Smith, kind of not directly, but kind of from from a from a hollow standpoint. It's very interesting. Uh, when you when you look at that, I'm not going to go over that this morning. Um, so if you have an opportunity, just kind of take a look at that. We're going to start um, on your handouts, bottom of the third page. Talks about facts relating pre-Islamic Arabic pagan worship to Islamic worship. I copied a section of the Quran. Just kind of interesting. It's it's the it's the story of Joseph and Potiphar. You read through that, and then we made, I made some comments. There's some comments at the bottom about how that differs. It really doesn't have anything to do with our salvation, but I thought it was a pretty good illustration of, of how they've taken an Old Testament story and kind of twisted it. Um, so there, I'm, if you want some more, we've got some more. I didn't, I didn't make a whole lot of copies of that. because, uh, But just understand, they, they twist the, uh, the story of creation mainly because um, from, from, from the original sin, what did that eventually bring have a need of? Salvation, right? Through Christ. Well, they don't believe that Christ is the Savior, so they had to twist it and, and basically say that uh, God came down and forgave Adam of those sins. That's when he built the Kaaba. And, so, and their basic belief is that God has the ability to forgive sins anytime He wants to. So we just need to be careful... And we'll talk about that in our first question. Um, let's go ahead. And... All right. Like I said, we're going to go ahead and start from the, I think, the bottom of the third page. Um, real, real quickly, want to go over uh, one of the main Islamic symbols that you see, which is the crescent moon. And history tells us that this was one of the um, pagan gods that were worshipped uh, in pre-Muhammad time by the Arabic community. Um, the, the word, actually when you go back to the word Allah, uh, the moon god was referred to as Allah. It's not a proper name for a single specific god, but it was a, a reference meaning the god. And apparently each tribe would choose which god they wanted to focus their worship on, and that would become Allah. And then uh, either Muhammad uh, shortened it, or it was shortened prior to then, to the term Allah, uh, which became the reference to the God, which Muhammad was then preaching to refer to um, to, to God, the Creator of all. Um, but but really, when you take a look at this, and here's a uh, here's a writer that talks about this this symbol being put on top of the Kaaba, and this was approximately 400 years prior to Muhammad. All right, so there, there's evidence that this symbol was being used in part of the paganistic worship. 
And this is the one on Wednesday, I said, where when uh, Muhammad goes into Mecca, or he walks into Mecca and takes it over, and he goes to the Kaaba and he destroys all of the idols. Well, I think all of them except one. Uh, the reference to the moon god. And that's where they turn and they focus that reference to the god and then refer to Allah as, um, as their main god. And of course, the Bible condemns moon worship. We're not going to go through all of it, all of these verses, but there's plenty of verses in the Bible that talks about warnings and, and everything about those who worship the moons and the suns and everything like that. Um, like I said, we're, we're going to go through all this really quickly if you want copies of this. All this stuff's going to be on the, on the website, and I can make hand copies if you want to. All right, the five pillars of Islam, which is really how they, um, kind of the foundation of their, of their everyday life and what they feel they have to do in order to, to get to heaven. And the first one is Shahada, or the profession of faith. Um, and there is, uh, I, did, I did use the English translation in your handout and said there is no God but God. But we have to remember that they call God Allah, so I corrected it on on the, uh, the here, but but basically their their profession is there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And this is they have to say this 17 times a day. Uh, each time they go into prayer, this is what uh, they say. And when the minaret, when you hear the Islamic call to prayers, this is what they're saying in Arabic: there is no God uh, but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So it's very very um, focused on. Them saying it a lot, okay, and that's their that's what they call the profession of faith. Um, salat is their daily prayer. Uh, they have to pray five times a day, and we talked about they have to face toward Mecca. When Muhammad apparent, uh, tells everyone that he had a vision and he goes from Mecca to Jerusalem up into heaven, back again in one evening. Part when he was in heaven, apparently he gets to talk to God. And at that time, they were having to pray 50 times a day. And he convinced God to continually reduce it down eventually until he got five times a day. Which kind of references back to Abraham's conversation concerning Sodom and bringing it down. Okay, so just, just a little tidbit there. Zakat is their annual charity. And this is uh, the tax, alms tax they pay. pay in any, depending on where you're at, it could range anywhere from 25 to 10%. Uh, of their wealth. Uh, Shom is their month long of fasting, the month of Ramadan. And this is when, during this month, which was part of the, the paganistic culture also, it was during this month that um, Muhammad started getting his revelations. Uh, so, But the believer must abstain from food and drink and also from any sexual relations. Um, because it's, it's supposed to remind them of those people that have nothing. Uh, and to help them realize how much they have. And then, of course, the Hajj, the pilgrimage, which is, we talked about that briefly on Wednesday also, which was already a pagan ritual every year going to Mecca. And I didn't go into detail, but very, very ritualistic. And I've got the details on your handout of what they have to do. And it's very specific what they have to do. Uh, so I thought that was interesting for, for everyone to, to have that, but I didn't put it on, on the top. It is a requirement that if you have the ability for all Muslims to make a pilgrimage once in their lifetime, um, if they don't have the means, they can actually 
help another person in their trip. Uh, but also, if they do if they do this pilgrimage any time other than the month of Ramadan, it doesn't count, uh, and there's a little bit less ceremonies that they have, that they go through if they don't do it during the month of Ramadan. Okay, but those are basically the five pillars that their faith is mount, uh, is or their everyday life is based upon. All right, now we're going to go to the questions. Um, what is the root of our faith? Somebody give me an answer. Anybody? Well, there are several things. For one thing, uh, Paul points out that, or in Romans 1, that uh, we can see uh, God all around us. And uh, we can see uh, people are without excuse if they deny God because they can see His work in in, uh, in our surroundings. Okay. Um, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist said. All right. Uh, and of course, uh, we have the, the Word of God that He has given to us. It's not He's not left us without witness. <coughs> also said. All right. Anybody else? I asked several people this, and a lot of a lot of the response that you that I got, which is the same response I would get, was. Well, because it's Jesus that we our belief is Jesus is the Son of God, and then if we go through this, well, why? Well, why? And it all gets back to I believe that our belief that what we have as the Bible is the true and complete Word of God. And the reason I wanted to bring this up was when we're talking to people from a denominational faith, we really have the same root foundation, right? They they believe that this is God's Word. When you're talking to Islamics, I was talking to uh, a guy who works for me. He's a Hindu, and I started talking to him the other day. They have a totally different book that they refer to. Okay, And I think it's important that we understand that we just can't open the Bible if we're talking to someone of the Muslim faith and say, well, read this. Because they're going to look at that and say, well, that's been corrupted. That's what's what their belief is. All right, So... Like I said, there's many answers that we can give, and, and I truly believe that this is the foundation of our belief, is that we do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came down, that He died, and then He rose again on the third day, as we find in 1 Corinthians 15. We read that in the Bible, and our faith says that, that we believe that God gave us that word throughout all of ages. And there's things we can go to, the, the centuries, the different writers that wrote the Bible, the centuries, over the time that it was written. There's no internal contradictions and everything like that. But it's very important, I think, and there, there again, I'd like some feedback. I think that if we talk to someone from the Islamic faith, I think we understand that they have the Quran, but we need to understand that we have to start from a totally different place than we would someone that we're talking to from, from other denominations that believe uh, in Jesus. Okay? Any comments, questions, concerns? Well, truth is very important. I mean, if somebody continually lies to you, you don't put any faith in, in that person. And so the Word of God is truth. And everything it says is truth. And so you can put your faith in that truth. Right. And remember that just a few minutes. Hope when we'll get there. Uh, because there's some there's some points that I made out about the Quran itself and, and they don't really listen to their Quran, their own Quran. One clear contrast between the, the books is 
if you look at fulfilled prophecy, we know, of course, that in the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament as fulfilled in the New Testament, there are thousands of uh, cases of fulfilled prophecy. Some of them extremely specific, far removed from the time when they were given, and any chance of likelihood. Well, in the Quran, there's exactly one instance of fulfilled prophecy, and it was that uh, Muhammad would return to Mecca. And, of course, that was reasonably self-fulfilled because he actually was that. When we kind of self-fulfilled prophecy, and we went and visited a Hindu temple in, in South Africa, and it was... They, they, it was built on this place because one of their prophets had predicted that it would be built here. And ten years later, he gives them the money to build it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. All right. All right. So the root of our faith. I think I just wanted I just wanted to bring out that that they don't look at the Bible the way we look at it. So we need to understand that if we start talking uh, to the people. And <coughs> moving on to about prophecies, how does the Bible describe how prophets would be recognized? Well, this is, I mean, pretty much what uh, Greg talked about in Deuteronomy 18. If it doesn't come to pass, they're not a prophet. And kind of going back to what Greg states, there's not a lot of prophecies in, in the Quran. As a matter of fact, the majority of the revelations that he has happens after. And I've got an example that we'll show in just a, uh, just a few moments. After the fact. Okay? From, from God's perspective... The prophet, if he's speaking through the prophet, of course God knows all, so therefore he could expound that to the prophet who would then uh, profess it. And, and we talk about when we went through the book of Isaiah in here. Thank you. We talked about uh, the prophecy of Cyrus, being hundreds, at least a hundred years uh, before that happened. Tim, I need a hand out. Okay, and then in Deuteronomy 13 talks about if, if there's a rise as a prophet and tells us to go after other gods, what is God telling us? Is he a true prophet? Does matter if his signs come? Yeah. Okay. All right. When Muhammad was challenged by the Jews and Christians to produce a sign, he received a special revelation. This is an example of uh, at this time. Um, they went. The Jews and the Christians in that area were concerned about this. They went to uh, Muhammad. He received this revelation. And at the bottom, we have not neglected anything in the book. Then to their Lord shall they be gathered. And they who reject our communications are deaf and dumb in utter darkness. Whom Allah pleases, He causes to err. And whom He pleases, He puts on the right way. And they interpret that as that the Quran itself is a sign. Okay. So, there again... Muhammad doesn't predict anything in the future that's going to happen. He's always getting revelation about things that are that have occurred, and then that he get, that God is going to explain to him how to handle it. All right, Muhammad's followers believed him without any signs, miracles, or witnesses. I thought this was interesting. Um, while he was in Mecca, this in this trip that he supposedly took to Jerusalem and up to heaven and all that, there was a lot of a lot of his followers who were concerned about this, about this great revelation, this 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 does you know this is unbelievable. And they went to Abu Bakr, which was his father-in-law, and he was the first caliph, as we talked about on Wednesday. And his response was, "If Muhammad said it, it must be so." And that's that's where their faith is based on. 
It's, it's not on signs and wonders as we talk about, as we see in Hebrews 2 and 3 through 4. God bore us witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Kind of what Greg was talking about. If we take a look at what our, what our, our, the root of our faith, where we believe this is the Bible, we can go back and we can say, yes, it, it said this and it happened. And they're not, they're not going to be able to do that. And so that's that's a, that's an area where you could have some good conversations with those who who, who follow the Muslim faith. Questions, comments? All right. How does the Bible describe the futures of Isaac and Ishmael? Anybody? One was the spirit of promise. One was the child of promise. Alright, now the Muslims believe that Ishmael was a child of promise. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that's I'm just saying that's what that's what we have to when we go and talk to them, we have to understand that they have they have some different beliefs. And and one of those is that Abraham offered uh, was to offer Ishmael as a sacrifice and not Isaac. Ishmael's described as a wild man who, though he would become a, a great nation, his hand would be against him. Other men and other men's hands would be against him. He wouldn't necessarily prosper in that. Right. All right. These are some of the things that, that I've got some research. Isaac was promised as an offspring of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 17, his name given from God. And we know why his name was given from God. And God's covenant with Abraham established through him. Now we have some, some information about Ishmael in the Bible too. His descendants would be multiplied exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude in 16 and 17. His name was also given from God in 16. He would be a wild man, his hand against every man, and every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. He will beget 12 princesses in Genesis 17. And then the generations that we see in 25 moved into Havilah, and some believe this is in northwest Arabia. Uh, and sure, which we know because the Bible tells us is east of Egypt, and so that would make them the ancestors of the Arabians. Right? And then God will make him a great nation, 17 and 21. And so, from a historical standpoint, the the Jews and the Christians <coughs> were laughing at the Arabians at this at the time because um, God had basically left them out of anything, and then. Muhammad learns from some Old Testament and finds out about Ishmael and goes, God did not leave us out of the promise. And therefore, the Quran came through with Ishmael as, as the, the seed of promise. Questions, comments? Ishmael was, uh, was cast out though, by Abraham and Sarah and, and this was with God's blessing when he was cast yeah. out in According, and I believe you, and I agree with you. According to our root of faith, okay. In the Quran, totally different story. And that's that's the little the little handout I gave you about Joseph and Potiphar. That's just to remind you that a lot of the stories that we know, based because we we, we understand that prophets came down. And told people what were going to happen, but also told them what had happened. And we have a faith that this is a true, accurate word of God. They don't. 
And that, that, that and that's why I ask question one is remember, we can always say, well, the Bible says, but they're going to go, we can't look at that because it's corrupted. And that's where we have to remember, this is talking to um, people of the Islam faith, the Hindu faith, uh, Buddha, all of those, have, we have to start from a different position. I agree with you 100%. It's just their story says something completely different. Is matter of fact that, um, well, Hagar, well, Ishmael was the chosen one through Hagar. Isaac came along later. And Isaac didn't have any reference to future promises or anything like that. So that's where you've got to be careful when you're talking to those of the Islamic faith. Okay, what do Christians look forward to in heaven? Alright, I'll just go. These are some of the things that I I thought about. A reward, a blessing for those who have been persecuted or involved, spoken evil of, accused falsely, Matthew chapter 5. An inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved for those obedient, 1 Peter 1. And this one is key, I think, is worshiping God and being in His presence for eternity, Revelation chapter 7. Okay. From the Islamic perspective, in Surah 9, Allah has promised to the believing men and the believing women gardens beneath which rivers flow to abide in them, and goodly dwellings and gardens of perpetual abode. And best of all, it's Allah's goodly pleasure that is a grand achievement. Rather, uh, in 37, rather they will enjoy gentle speech, pleasant shade, and ever available fruit. As will all the cool drink and meat they desire. They will drink from a shining stream of delicious wine from which they will suffer no intoxicating after effects. And besides them will be chaste women restraining their glances with big eyes. And I'd like to read from this book. This is a uh, written from a Muslim. And this is a big difference. And I think what, what I saw was what we look forward to is being in God's presence and worshiping Him forever. What they look forward to are what we know as fleshly desires. Okay, I just wonder, this is from an Islamic writer. Okay, We will all be about 30 years of age and in the prime of our physical shape, and we will never feel sick or hurt again. Babies who died will remain as infants, but they will have the run of the place, scurrying around like pretty green birds all aflutter. Heaven has seven layers, and each of us will be taken to our home, which will be located on one of these levels. The level is determined both by our extent of our goodness and by the amount of our prophet's teachings that we learned while we were alive in the world. Each level is so fantastic, however, that we will not feel any slight or jealousy because of our assigned level. In fact, such sentiments will be unknown in heaven. No ill talk, gossip, or lying will be heard. We will be able to visit people who live in different levels. Friends and family will meet and lounge in leisure. Husbands and wives will be reunited if they choose, and socializing will be a major activity. There will be special servants and pleasure mates uh, called Horus in paradise. They are intelligent yet soulless creatures made only to serve and please us in a world that knows no more vice. So basically they're talking about a sexual relationship without any... Uh, without any... Con- and, and, and whenever they want it, okay? Wine, another vice that was forbidden in the world, will be allowed there also, and the best food will always be brought to us. We don't need to eat to survive any longer. There will we eat for the joy of it. Paradise contains markets to shop in, fountains to relax near, roads to travel, and endless delights. Boredom will never occur. 
occur. There will be gi- uh, we will be given silk clothes with jewelry of the finest quality. The people of paradise will be quite a sight. All right. So when I read that, I suddenly realized that you know what they're looking forward to is fulfilling all of the fleshly desires that man has here on earth, and that really struck a contrast with me. You know, when we read the Bible, you know, God has set that up for us, and yet. It's for us to be able to be in His presence and to worship Him. The focus is on Him. And I think when we read from the Quran, although they say they will be in the presence of Allah, it's fairly obvious that the pleasures that they are looking for are pleasures for themselves. And so I just wanted to share that with everybody. Um, And and what I felt was uh, a a difference in, in our outlook to heaven from the uh, Islamic perspective of heaven. Comments? Questions? Alright. Do we have a need for another revelation? I think Galatians states if any, any other comes to you teaching something different that uh, not to believe. Right? <laughs> Okay, anybody else? Peter tells us that we're given all things that pertain to life and godliness. So all right. Well covered it too. I stole this from the preacher up in uh, Murfreesboro, by the way. So, But I thought it was really good. He put this together. He did a, uh, a study on, on Mormonism. And when I read that, I go, well, I, you know, it was done in a great format, so I just want to tell you where I stole this from. All right. There is no room for the grant. Okay, in John sixteen thirteen, the Lord's promises to guide us into all truth. All is encompassing. There is no room for more. Paul's preaching was the whole counsel of God. Acts twenty twenty seven, and Second John nine. Of course, the doctrine of Christ does not include the doctrine of Quran or Muhammad, however you want to put it. So there is no room for the Quran, and there's no need for the Quran. In Mark 16, who's the gospel for? Every creature. Therefore, do we need the Quran? And Colossians chapter 2 and 10. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And we've already talked about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Our belief is that God brought us and compiled for us the complete word, his, his complete word. Contend for the faith once delivered. All right. Contend for the faith once delivered. Anybody else? All right. But these are the these are the things. Greg's probably going to bring this up when he goes into his discussion on, on Mormonism and their beliefs and their books <laughs> that they believe into. Um, we we have to be able to go to what we believe is God's word and show that we don't need anything else. There is no need for anything else. And that's that's the quickest way to be cursed. Preach another gospel. All right. Another doctrine. Okay. Gary. Yes. How do you answer them though when they come back and say, "Well, that's corrupted. Your information is corrupted." What what kind of reply are you going to give them there? All right. Let's see. We'll, 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 we'll get there. Why do Christians believe the Bible to be the true, complete Word of God? All right. Paul said that revelation would come to an end. First uh, Corinthians thirteen eight: Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. 
Whether there be tongues, I shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you into the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, which Brother Ligaber brought up. And then Peter said that everything that was necessary for man was to be pleasing God had been revealed. 2 Peter 1.3 According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That's a few verses why we believe that what we know is the Bible is the true and complete Word of God. I'm just going to throw another one Mm -hmm. in the mix. Ephesians 1 and 3 where it talks about Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay. God has We just come to all our blessings. All of our blessings have been given by God. Okay. All right. Now, I think this is this is something that we, we can use. Why do Muslims believe that the text of the Bible has been corrupted? When you read these verses in the Quran, the Quran declares the Bible to be a true revelation of God and demands faith in the Bible. Right. Now, I referenced, I, I did follow up on three-fourths of those, and then I ran out of time. Um, but I did, I did follow up on all of these and, uh, and, and verify that the information that I was getting was accurate. All right. And it does reference the, uh, the Torah and the Gospel, as we talked about in, on Wednesday night. And in some of these verses, it references back to that and says that it is the Word of God. All, right. All of the above texts presuppose that the availability of the true revelation of God to the people of, of Muhammad's day. So therefore, these, these verses concur to the fact that there was a Torah that someone could go to and read from. There was letters or the gospel that someone could go back and read. So this this isn't I mean, when the Quran declares this, this wasn't anything new to them. It was something that those people already knew existed. Now this is interesting. A true Muslim is obliged to believe in all the revelations of God. So if these are recognized as the revelations of God, then aren't they commanded to believe in them? That's what their book says. The Quran makes no distinction between God's God's revelations. And the Quran claims that no one can change the Word of God. So their claim that it's been corrupted, but yet no one can, can, can change it. Why do Muslims believe it's corrupted? In the 11th century, four centuries after Muhammad, this is the first indication that a Muslim cleric or a scholar recognized or charged that the Bible had been corrupted. Muhammad, it was never in the Bible that, or excuse me, never in the Quran that those scriptures known as the the Torah and the Gospels and the Psalms uh, had been corrupted. That's very. That's that. I think is the answer to that question. Is the is is we probably need to learn enough of their book to be able to open it and show them where they're contradicting themselves when they say that. All right, and then we can see. You know, they 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 talk about the God that 
is in the Torah, that is in the Gospels, being the same God that is in the Quran. And yet, we can see that Allah is not God. All right? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? If, if God spoke something from the beginning, why would it change? <coughs> For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by, will by no means pass away, and God cannot lie. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Okay? And we need to understand that their, their belief in Allah is totally different than our belief in what our God is. Okay. Now, what can we do? Sure. So I think one thing that's interesting about their their different view of God is they see God as what we would call almost Calvinistic. That he really doesn't care about us at all. That he doesn't have any love for us. And, and he's not really concerned about what happens to us. He's doing his own thing and he's concerned about his own glory. And if we show up in heaven, that's great. If we don't, that's great too. He really doesn't care. Well, it goes, I, I, it goes to their very... Um, uh, very uh, based on works. Um, matter of fact, the, the Hindu religion I found out the other day is very similar in that. Um, if it if you do enough good, if you do more good works than bad works, you'll get to heaven. Um, one good work covers ten bad works, and so their whole focus is. Am I doing more good works than bad works? Not necessarily. I don't want to do the bad works. It's just I got to make sure I do more good works than bad works. I had a Muslim explain to me this way. I was explaining to him Jesus Christ and how He is our Savior. He allows us to be forgiven of our sins. That a holy and righteous God can still be holy and righteous and forgive us because the sacrifice was made. And I asked him, uh, you know, why. How is a Muslim forgiven of sin? And his response was, uh, Islam teaches that a Muslim uh, cannot commit sin against another person and God hold them accountable. If I wrong you, my sin is against you, but God, he, he's a disinterested party from, for the most part from, from an accounting standpoint. Now, if I deny that there is but one true God and that that God is Allah and that Muhammad is his true prophet, then that's a sin with which I've got to deal with, with God. And that's just going to require repentance. But it doesn't have the concept of a holy God who is consistent. But actually in the Quran it states that if they do evil against another Muslim, Muslim that's different. Yeah. then they will be... All right. So that's interesting. I hadn't read that. And, and you're going to, just like with, the, with anything, you're going to find differences between what one Muslim believes and what another right. Muslim And, and talking about eternity, they, don't, they believe that hell exists, but it's only eternal for those of the worst of the worst of the worst. Okay? For, for others who, their, their belief is that there's this um, uh, bridge over hell that you have to go to to get to heaven and it's and, you know, I don't want to go into detail um, but and so if, you, if you're if you full of good works you're going to make it fine because it's made of like razor blades and stuff like that so but if you're if you've got bad works you're going to be cut up as you go across there and if you've done enough bad works you fall into hell but after a period of time 
God may say, okay, you've been punished enough, you come out of hell and you get to go to heaven. All right, so hell as a concept for them is not necessarily an eternal destination. And that's something also that was I thought was rather interesting. What is their worst, worst, worst of sin? Well, no, it goes back to what Greg said. If you don't recognize, and I'm paraphrasing, but if you don't recognize Allah as the true God, and based on what I'm reading, if you don't recognize Muhammad as the true messenger of God, that's probably going to get you in hell for eternity. No. <laughs> but there are also there are also verses in the Quran. Remember, we talked about not coercing people, to, and and that and really, there's verses that talk about not being um, uh, hurtful. Now, that's not the word I'm looking for to people. And it's interesting because if they just listen to their word, then they wouldn't be going around blowing up people. But you know, everybody has some different thoughts. Okay, well, what can we do? And I wanted to kind of end up with uh, because you know the, we hear all the time, and we talked about Wednesday. Is Islam is the second largest religion in the world, and they're predicting by the year 2025 that it will become the largest religion in the world. And I meant to bring another handout to hand out, and it's and it's what we I think, and I say I'm not I'm not afraid. <laughs> I will go to bed at night because God's in control. Okay, but just from a a humanistic, a human standpoint in this country, I think what we have to be afraid of is that that there are people out there pushing Christianity and the belief in God so far away. It's going to create, a, and something's going to fill it up. And guess what that is? Islam. Okay. I read an article. Now I know that we don't believe in Christmas and all that, but I thought it was interesting somewhere up north that a school decided to postpone their Christmas play in order for the Islamic play to be held. Okay? And there's another situation of we can do whatever we, we being the world and, and our government and what we can do whatever we want to Christianity because we have to be tolerant. But we have to make sure that the Islamic people get whatever they want. Alright? And, and I think that's what that's what the that our concern needs to be. Really, the more that I read about it, the objective of the Islamic is for every country to be under Islamic law. And that's, if we don't, if we don't stand up, and, and, and really when I say stand up, stand up for our faith, not necessarily from a, a human standpoint, but stand up for our faith, it's just going to come in just like Muhammad went into Mecca. No bloodshed at all. That's what I think we have to be, and so therefore we we need to pray. You know, we we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our leaders. Um, we need to, of course, study God's word. That we that we know how to look to God's word. That we can be able to teach, be able to turn to that, and not just have our faith based on what someone says from the pulpit. Remember what happened to Paul when he was in Philippians. Those were out there, they were out there preaching the gospel to his detriment. And some because out of love. And it was because of his defense for the gospel. We need to be prepared to defend the gospel. And this is interesting. The Bible teaches us that we need to pray for those people who are out there wanting to hurt us because of our beliefs. We need to live godly lives. We go back to Genesis 18 and 
And we talk about we talk briefly about Abraham's uh, discussion with God about reducing the number that, of righteous that he could find in Sodom. Ten would have spared Sodom, and yet he couldn't find ten. We need to trust in God. Uh, Proverbs three, one of my favorite verses. We need to put our trust in God and let Him lead our paths. And we don't need to lean on this world because we know in the end the world is going to be destroyed. We can't put our faith and our trust in this world and in the things of this world. I don't think we should pray for enemies of God. Well, we pray for a false gospel. No, I'm not saying we pray for their abounding. We need to pray that they recognize the truth and change. That's when we say pray for our enemies. We're not praying for the Islamic faith to continue to abound and more and more people uh, convert to Islam. What we're praying for is opportunities to be able to sit down with them, discuss with them, for them to have an open mind and a willing heart, and for the gospel to penetrate them. That, I believe, is what we're praying for. Anyone disagree? We don't pray for their their death. We don't pray for their you know losing their property. Their uh, you know that they would be. Uh, Incarcerated or anything like that. that, those are things that we might uh, desire from a human standpoint. Just get them out of the way, right? Take them out of the world. But but I, but I believe, I mean, I believe that goes back to that's the difference between God and Allah. Yeah, and they're taking advantage of that. Yeah, but, we, but we still need to pray for them. That <coughs> no, I agree with that. All right. One one point I yes, that uh, occurs to me uh, since the Bible has been around for hundreds of years, maybe six hundred years by the time uh, the Islam came about, uh, and he, of course he claims that the Quran has been around since the beginning of time. Uh, you suppose perhaps he learned all these facts about Abraham and Ishmael and all of them from the scriptures and then he began to put his own yeah uh, that, that's what I, that's what in, in reading some different historical accounts and all that that's what I tend uh, that's what I believe and that's what a lot of historians believe is that there were there were Jews and Christians in that area at the time and he would have he would have been talking to them and learned what their beliefs were in and then when he looked at the Arabs and the paganistic worship, and he's looking over here, and they're worshiping one God. He said, "This is what we need to do." And plus, historical historical facts tell us that the the Arabs in general were now turning away from pagan worship and wanting to worship one God. And so here, Muhammad had this opportunity to come in and say, "Yes, we need to worship one God, and this is what we need to worship." But so he wanted one that was centered more in his area of the world rather than one. Well, you got to remember, remember what we said that the Jews and the Christians at that time were actually laughing at the Arabs because God had forgotten them. There was no prophet among the Arabs. And when he learned about Abraham and the story of Ishmael, then all of a sudden I think an opportunity arose to say, hey, that's my forefather. We did have a prophet. And what did he teach? And then the rest is history, as they say. Sadly. All right. One other quick thing. Um, 
Watch the news in years to come. What 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 year is this? I had to think a minute. 2008 A.D. Right? And it just and and a, I forgot what it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, talking it references back to to Christ. Correct. In several years, we will probably be going away from that and going to C.E. and B.C.E. Current error before current error. Another push right out the door. Already see that. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate your comments.